Well, good morning. And happy Father's Day to everyone. <laughs> I guess everybody gets affected by fathers. Um, this is a uh, this is a special Father's Day for me. Tonight I'm preaching on Romans 5, 1 through 11, um, under the title, The Gifts of God for the People of God. And I was really kind of hoping that Andrew would preach on Romans this morning. Um, uh, not because I needed the sermon for tonight, <laughs> but it just I, I, I just have been dwelling on that passage and was looking forward to it. And uh, ironically, my son who teaches English at Northwest University in Seattle he, um, is involved in a an small Anglican church plant uh, in Kirkland, Washington, and that church is also called, kids are loud, also called the Advent. And uh, p- this past year, he was ordained as a deacon in that church. And he's preaching right now, or this morning, uh, in Seattle on Romans 5, 1 through 11. So uh, that could not be more special for me as a father to have my son preaching on the same text that I will be preaching uh, this evening at the Advent, and we're both at the Advent across country. Um, we have been studying uh, the, the letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians. And uh, this is our third week in, and what we have done is uh, we looked at Corinth as a culture, as a uh, kind of emblematic postmodern culture, that there's a lot of similarities between the Corinthian identity and the American identity. Uh, the highly consumeristic, individualistic, autonomous, kind of uh, spiritual, dematerialized kind of thinking that went on in Corinth is something that we cope with today in the way we think and believe uh, as Americans. Not as Christians, but as Americans. And as you recall, the stress in Paul's thinking was that, you know, I came to you in the exact opposite way of culturally appealing to you and being relevant with you. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we stressed last week how the crucifixion is just diametrically opposed to anything in the Corinthian culture that would have resonated, that would have connected. And the point that we talked about last week was that really the cross is running counterculture to every culture. To the Japanese culture, we looked at, we just mentioned silence, and to the uh, American culture, you name it. And with a dwelling on the cross of Jesus Christ, you are coming into that which runs counter to the ethos of any culture you're looking at. And then the Apostle Paul takes this theme of the cross and he basically plants it in every issue troubling the Corinthians. The uh, leadership issue, some are saying they're a Peter, some a Paul, some of a Paulus some of um, Christ, and Paul says, none of us were crucified for you. None of us died for you. None of us were, you weren't baptized in our names. 
And he just takes every issue, the issue of leadership, the issue of unity, the issue of church discipline, the, the issue of um, eating meat offered to idols and the confusion that that was um, breeding in the life of the church, uh, sexuality, uh, the celebration of the Lord's table. If you read closely through Corinthians, uh, you'll see a mention, a phrasing, uh, a, a kind of a laser perspective, here's the cross. Uh, as Paul says at one point, wouldn't you rather be wronged? Why would you take a brother or sister to court? Why would you use the system against a brother or sister? Wouldn't you rather be wronged? Because your Lord went to the cross. I mean, it, that's his. it's a countercultural logic, which says that in kind of every sphere of thinking in life, uh, because of Jesus Christ and his lordship, uh, life is really different and on a different ground, a different basis. And we did mention just very briefly the demonstration of the spirit. A question was raised about that. And the point that I see Paul emphasizing here is that the only reason you can come to the gospel, that you can respond to the faith, that you can accept this message of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his cross, the only reason you could be marked by the cross, not only believe in the cross, but bear the cross, the only reason is by the power of the spirit of the wisdom of God. And uh, the spirit came not with eloquence and with showing off or with something ostentatious, the spirit had impact because it changed your heart and mind. And that's a demonstration of the power of the spirit of God. Now, what I want would like to do in this hour and next week is to focus on 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, that's the text that... Uh, I just feel that in, in many ways, Paul has been powerfully moving toward. I resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and yet ends with this uh, powerful description of the resurrection. Now, that too was a problem in the Corinthian church. The problem was this, that many disdained, especially the kind of the elite, the intelligentsia, the, the, the with it, the wealthy and the wise in Corinth that had come to Christ I didn't like the idea of the bodily resurrection. The idea that there would be an actual renewing of the real self, the whole you, body, mind, and soul. That was repulsive to them because of the way they were spiritually wired. In much the same way that and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but in much the same way that I think sophisticated elite people today sort of want to see the resurrection as a neat metaphor, a metaphor for the spirit of the person living on, for the sense of um, the legacy spiritually of the person. And I think it's harder and harder for 21st century people to actually believe that this is just a transitory phase that we're going through. A bodily, physical, spiritual, real phase, but nevertheless, our bodies are going to be transformed into glorious, resurrected bodies that will live forever. 
more and more to the 21st century person, that seems mythological, kind of pie in the sky. I think one of the most difficult services in a church now is a memorial service by a person who's been largely known within the culture and attracts many non-Christians, pagans, secularists to that service. And it's interesting because I think that the, the hymns and the eulogizing and the personal testimony can be well received, whether you're Christian or non-Christian. Uh, because there's a sense in which the, the existential comfort that comes out of that. It's an emotive kind of response. But so often when the pastor stands up to preach the truth and to say, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. And actually preaches an everlasting life because of the faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, I've witnessed it. I've witnessed it where just people are just turning off. And people are rolling their eyes uh, because I'm looking at them face to face as I'm doing it. And it's just a, it's an interesting dynamic, and that dynamic was in the church at Corinth. There were people that uh, were in the weekly fellowship who disdained Paul's notion of really an understanding of a bodily resurrection that that person was coming back, not in the same way, not with that old, physically disabled body, but with a new, glorified, resurrected body. And that's what he works out in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, here's a thesis, and I, uh, I haven't really read it, so it may not be very good. Usually I'm very tentative with something that... Uh, I think it's true to the word of God, but listen for a second. I think history prepares us for the cross. Not kind of history at large, but especially salvation history. The unfolding salvation drama really prepares us for the cross. There's all sorts of hints and images and genres and and types that uh, everywhere from Moses raising the bronze serpent up in the wilderness to, um, to Satan will crush his heel, but you'll crush the head and uh, to the Passover uh, lamb to these, these uh, images that flood through, that well, don't flood, but move through the Old Testament. History prepares us for the cross of Jesus Christ. Even so, we were very surprised. Uh, even so, those devoted to God, to Yahweh, to the Word of God, were shocked that Isaiah's suffering servant really was going to be the, the, the Messiah. I mean, all of these hints that are there somehow missed people, but it was there. It was embedded in history. Well, what do you think? If not only history, salvation history prepares us for the cross... What do you think of creation and the wonders of God's creation prepares us for the resurrection? What if the, the science, uh, the cellular exploration, the, the micro 
cosmic world of the cell. Uh, uh, what about the, uh, the idea of 140 billion galaxies? We should faint at that. <laughs> to be told that there's 140 billion galaxies in a visible universe, shouldn't that shock us? Um, that a, a spoonful of matter uh, from a neutron star weighs millions of pounds? A spoonful? I mean, when scientists tell us that this, we believe it. Um, that there's a volcano under Yellowstone that stretches for 45 miles of molten rock. You wouldn't know that by looking at it, would you? But I mean, there's a sense that nature is, uh, we, we just have a, a, a very faint grasp of the the extent, the power, the complexity, the beauty, the wonder of nature. Just a faint. Uh, the congressman that was shot this week. David, I've been thinking about this, so maybe you can help, help me. How many years ago would he have died? Uh, he lost all of his volume of blood. Um, you know, at first we hear he was shot in the hip, like, oh, you can... You can do that. But the bullet entered one side and, and really went right through, hitting everything in between. Um, looks like he'll be able to walk, you know, if he lives. If he can get over this blood loss and no infection, uh, it looks like he'll pull through, thank the Lord. Um, but how many years ago, from a medical science perspective, would that have just been, he was brought in super critical, he would have died. That's what the uh, intensive care coordinator said. So 75 years ago, it probably would have been hopeless. Even so, his life was probably clinging by a few minutes when he was brought in. Uh, and it isn't that... Uh, I mean, so much of what we believe today in science would have been considered incomprehensible and unbelievable 100 years ago. I mean, it's phenomenal. So if history and salvation history can point fairly decisively to a cross, could it be that the wonders and beauties and power of creation should give us some faint glimpse, hope, the reality of a new glorified resurrected body? That it's not that fantastic in that sense. Well, you think about it. I mean, that's the fundamental thesis that I'm, that I'm thinking about and working through. Um, well, let's read the text. That would be a good thing. Let's pray before we let, let's start this class. <laughs> Lord God, thank you for drawing us together. Uh, we reverence your word. It is holy. It is true. It's what we depend upon. Thank you for revealing to us your way, your truth, your life. Help us to receive it well in the spirit, we ask. In the name of Christ, to the glory of the Father. Amen. Amen. So under A, first and foremost, I have kind of talked about the first part there. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. 
Well, this this idea of belief is dynamic. Um, I don't quite know how to characterize it, but you know, at this stage in life, at 65 and having spent 30 plus years working this way in the church, I'm now at a place where I have seen people lose their faith, people I've worked with, associates of mine, people that I never ever dreamed would um, would reject it, missionaries who gave a great deal. Um, of life, of sacrifice, um, basically saying, well, now these, this is just words. This is just words. This, I don't believe in this anymore. It's deeply painful. Um, and Paul the Apostle here is bringing us right back down to square one. Uh, home base. This gospel you received... It has saved you. You've taken your stand in it. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And there's a thought here that this, this has creedal shape to it. There is a sense that um, this is a confessional statement. It may have been a, uh, also hymn-like in its uh, celebration in the fellowship of believers. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters, the same time most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. And that abnormally born has, uh, uh, Osvaldo could speak to this, has, has required a lot of text uh, because it, it has the most disparaging way that he could speak of himself here. Um, uh, is kind of a thrown-out fetus. That's what he uses to describe his birth. So our abnormally born doesn't carry the, the same sort of uh, gruesomeness that the Apostle Paul uh, used here to express it. It's, uh, I'm, I'm doing a memorial service in uh, July 22nd in San Diego for a woman in her 80s uh, who passed away in Alaska. She was our Christian education director in San Diego uh, for a number of years and, and an elder in the church and just a, a really wonderful uh, woman who wherever she went, regardless of the man, women, teaching issue, she always started teaching and setting up Bible study fellowships. Um, and uh, real good, solid thinker that Virginia and I respect deeply. And they had a memorial service in Alaska, and they're having one in San Diego. And they asked me to preach from this text. Interesting. Uh, you know, the fa I love it when the family gives me the text. Um, and uh, uh, June Whipple loved Paul. Uh, 
she just she loved teaching through the epistles and uh, she looked at Paul as her friend uh, and, and it was interesting there was something about the authority of Paul and the tone of Paul it had suited June perfectly but it all oh, it's like it came from Paul um, and uh, you know, I can almost hear her voice, what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that according to the scriptures sends us back into the Old Testament, sends us back into the Psalms. Because, uh, you know, scholars are notorious for talking about how uh, vague resurrection talk is in the Old Testament. But it's there. Paul is rereading the Old Testament in the light of Christ and uh, understanding type and prophecy together. Verse 9, For I am, uh, I am the least of the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle uh, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Sometimes I think in um, heavily Lutheran impacted churches, we disparage the thought of working hard working hard in kingdom work, working hard in local church work, working hard. Paul here says, you know, it's an interesting dynamic here because he's speaking so much of grace. I am what I am by the grace of God. But man, I worked hard. But he's not working hard for salvation. He's working hard because of salvation. That's the difference. So it's not... Oh, I got to do this if God's going to be pleased with me. It's because God's pleased with me that I'm freed up to work really hard. Uh, and I hope that we have that desire to work hard. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. No credit to me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. Now, is that clear? <laughs> it's uh, Brian McLaren is a very popular Christian writer. If you haven't heard of him, that's fine. I, I would prefer that you not go out and buy his books. But uh, he has an interesting segment on belief uh, in this book. Uh, he's one of your kind of postmodern, uh, quote, Christian advocates. And uh, kind of, uh, he says this about belief that on any given Sunday, there's six categories of believers within the church. His first category is this universally compelling belief. We believe this claim because of compelling logical arguments that should convince any rational person in any community. Anyone who does not accept this belief has made a conceptual error. So that's the first type. 
the universally compelling belief. The second, the rationally defensible belief. Strong voices in today's world, perhaps even the majority, do not judge this proposition to be true, but I've got good reason to explain why the majority is wrong to reject this belief and why I'm right to hold it. Three, personalized belief. I don't have good reasons to expect all people to believe this proposition to be true, but I have personal reasons, experiences, intuitions, assumptions, needs that lead me to believe it. My community of faith generally shares these reasons and experiences. Fourth, vacillating belief. Sometimes I have personal reasons to believe in this proposition may be true, but at other times the reasons don't seem compelling to me. Although I often doubt, I frequently find myself believing nonetheless. Fifth, wishful belief. I do not believe this claim to be true, but I consistently wish it were true and that it will turn out to be true. And I try to live as if it were true. And then sixth, metaphorical belief. I do not believe this claim to be true, but I believe it's a metaphor for something else that I do judge to be true. McLaren's point is that on any given Sunday, you have six different types of believers in your congregation. And that's fine. That's just great. They all count. I don't think the Apostle Paul would be pleased with maybe the description of any one of these. Because we believe with our mind, with our heart, with our soul. We believe because the spirit of truth has been compelling and convincing. There's no kind of half-belief, quarter-belief, thought-belief. There's not wishful thinking belief. There's not overly rationalistic belief. Belief is a confession that, yes, involves a great deal of us, but we would always, uh, I think, admit that uh, we believe because God, by his grace, has led us into this conviction and into this confession. And this is kind of a humanistic description of all six of those beliefs categories. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. So uh, this brings us down to B, refuting incoherent belief about the resurrection. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, you see all where I'm reading? How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching's useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then to be found false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
Well, it sure doesn't sound like a belief in the bodily resurrection of Christ is something that Paul thinks is at all arbitrary. Jim? The apostles believed and testified to a material, historical understanding of the risen Lord Jesus. That's a fact. That would be a fact that they assert. Um, And they would not in any way equivocate on that. And so that's, I mean, you're quite right. Um, Now, in the absence of that personal experience for us, of that one-on-one eyewitness account for ourselves, I think the apostles would answer, well, yeah, you don't have that, but you do have the Spirit of Christ. And now that may not impress the Western materialist at that point, but I think that would be their response. On the basis of our testimony of a material bodily resurrection, we saw it, Jesus, You have the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think I would add to that um, that God really does have the power to break in in our lives. And one of the things that I think is being recorded now and testified to is the power of God to break into the life of Muslims through visions of Jesus. Now, that may sound pretty ethereal to some of you, but... Uh, we're getting reports and stories and, um, and accounts of, of many people that have come to Jesus Christ without any real collaborative Christian witness or testimony, coming kind of cold turkey because of the vision of Christ to them. And then you and all, we have personal experiences as well that I think become part of that testimony of the resurrection. Uh, I think I've told you before that um, my dad died at 48 um, from stomach cancer. The last three days of his life, uh, he had really no energy. No pre- he couldn't even open his eyes. Uh, he wasn't comatose, but uh, he was just totally, totally weak. And then just as he was dying, he uh, opened his eyes wide looked at the window, looked at my mother, raised both hands up in the air like that, and then died. And it was like, it was this last word to us that uh, death has been conquered here. Um, uh, and I, I, it's, I mean, there's always the sadness of the absence, but the, the power of that last word. Uh, and my dad was not, you know, this kind of super... He was a really solid believer, but this sort of emotional aspect was not part of his temperament, part of the way he related. He's a mathematician. Um, So, I mean, this was a dramatic statement um, as we received it. 
Uh, now, what credibility that has beyond us, I don't know, but I, it has tremendous credibility with me, having witnessed it. So the power of God's dynamic to break in and make himself real is, is tremendous, I think. Um, but as you're, I mean, you're quite right to emphasize this, this material, resurrected, empirical witness that the apostles had. If you heard in the back, this, Dr. Matthews is making the comment that uh, Christ made himself real to Thomas. You know, put your finger in my, my nail-scarred hands, reach my side. We really don't know if Thomas even touched at that point. But then the added-on statement there that blessed are those who have not seen but have believed. Um, good point. Number four, uh, have we? Uh, I think we've covered page one. Number four, some of the church found the notion of bodily resurrection crass and embarrassing. Um, number five, Paul is refuting those who have disparaged the body. Um, I've already mentioned number six. Today's dualism lies not between body and soul. These notes are sort of for me and for you and something you can take away and look at. Uh, I feel freer not being tied to them, obviously, um, but I think we've covered that point. Interesting, Rudolf Boltmann in, uh, in number six there, one of the most famous 20th century New Testament scholars, he claimed that a literal physical resurrection was impossible and his judgment in historical fact that involves a resurrection from the body is utterly inconceivable. Um, for many professing believers today who pride themselves on their sophistication, the resurrection symbolizes a positive outlook on life, more of a metaphor, a de-supernaturalized, dematerialized symbol. Number seven, for the Apostle Paul, either the bodily resurrection is real or it's nothing at all. If the bones of Jesus disintegrated in a Palestinian tomb, then the Christian faith dissolves. A modern writer, John Updike, expresses it this way in his poem on telephone poles. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted on the faded, in the faded credulity of earlier ages. So Paul's pretty emphatic that if Christ has not been raised, our preaching's been useless. You are still sinners. Worse than that, we have been deceiving others. So no church can really remain a church that denies the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ 
and hesitates even to preach that truth, then you might as well not be a church. It was really working, uh, interesting in Toronto, working in theology. I, I did a doctorate at the University of uh, Toronto and St. Michael's College, and my professors, some of them, didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. And it was just uh, surprising to me how you could devote your life to the academic profession of theology, Christian theology, and not believe this. Like, why? Uh, and yet, there's something about the momentum of uh, our own existential states, I guess, that carries us through that disbelief in the professions and in the traditions that we have been a part of. But Paul would count would not countenance that. Um, Osvaldo. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, not believing in a physical resurrection, but rather in a sort of metaphorical the resurrection as a metaphorical symbol is viewed as a sign of sophistication in our intellectual climate. When you were talking, I just remember that uh, another New Testament scholar who was a, a student of Buma, who you mentioned, uh, Kesemite, mm -hmm. They asked him about the resurrection. He said, oh, yeah, that Jewish doctrine. Hmm. We, the bodily, the physical resurrection. Oh, yeah, that Jewish doctrine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, let's look at C. We've got a five minutes here. The bodily resurrection is essential to salvation, history, the kingdom of God, evangelism, missions, and ethics. Verse 20, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn... Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear that he does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then, the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Okay, you're tracking, hopefully, Paul, that this is a salvation history logic that the Apostle Paul has here, that we all died in Adam, we will all live in the second Adam. Verse 29, now if there is no resurrection, what will those who are baptized for the dead, what will those do who were baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Now that has been somewhat inscrutable. People have struggled to understand that. Uh, my take on it, cutting through, I guess, a, a ton of scholarship, uh, is this, that, and Tony Thistleton, um, who um, has, has written a, a, a wonderful, com two commentaries on, on 1 Corinthians, his argument or his slant on this is that Christians who die in the Lord bear a really strong testimony. The impact of that testimony leads to conversion and baptism. So it's the power of 
the dying saint who bears witness to the gospel that leads to baptism and conversion. And if there is no hope of the resurrection, then those are fruitless, futile testimonies that don't count, shouldn't lead to baptism, shouldn't lead to conversion. That's his take on it, and I think it uh, is it's a helpful one. Verse 30, and as, f- as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? If I face, uh, I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised... Now, his second point, the powerful testimony of the saints who die in the Lord, for all, this, or all the saints who from their labors rest, who thee by faith before the world confess, thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. The power of that testimony that leads to baptism and conversion. His second is, why would I risk my life? Why would I put up with all that I put up with for the sake of sharing the gospel if the resurrection were not true? I have put my life on the line for this. So if death ends all, then this has been pointless. And then his third argument, uh, if the dead are not raised, let's just eat, drink, and be merry. Let's just live like regular Alabamans. (laughs) If that's all there is, if it's just a matter of creating my comfort zone uh, for this short transitory life, Uh, using my money for myself in order to make my life easier. Uh, Well, if the dead are not raised, why wouldn't I do that? If this is the only life that we have, uh, and I have earned what I have received, uh, why wouldn't I do it this way? And Paul says, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And maybe this would be a fourth. I don't know if it's an extension of the third or another uh, aspect of it. Uh, Why wouldn't I do just what I please to do? No right, no wrong, just whatever meets my pleasure, if there is no resurrection. Verse 34, come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. So obviously... In the church in Corinth, there were some who were saying there really is no bodily resurrection. We're already experiencing the resurrection spiritually. This has been wonderful. The body doesn't count. You can do with whatever you want to do with it sexually. You can satisfy whatever physical appetites you have. It doesn't really matter. Uh, And Paul is saying, no, this whole thing hangs together. And it hangs together because of the reality of a resurrection. Well, let's stop here. Any questions, comments, thoughts? This is splitting a hair, uh, but I'm just curious to know. You're using the NIV, right? Yes. Okay. The RSV and I think the ESV say untimely born as opposed to abnormally born. And I've, you know, in uh, verse 8, I'll be on the front, it says, you know, Last of all, appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Well, the other, other two versions call it untimely born. And, you know, I'm kind of, what's the issue? Well, like a miscarried fetus would be an untimely, uh, untimely born. 
Um, his point is to um, to disparage the way he came to Christ. That he came because he was so resistant. He was so reluctant. He was such a bad birth. Um, I think that's his point. So untimely or abnormal, I think, is basically kind of saying the same thing. Um, this is one of those places where we probably should have just make us all translate the Greek literally um, and just leave it at that. Uh, yes? You mentioned earlier that, that Paul didn't seem interested in being overly relevant to people in Corinth. Well, actually, you've said it really well, because uh, we do have to kind of struggle with the cultural, traditional things that get in the way of the gospel, in the in the way of the clarity of the truth of Jesus Christ dying for our sins, rising again. We believe in a bodily resurrection, and getting that truth out rather than getting our tradition out or a way of doing things out. And so we're always, I think, in a constant struggle with that. Uh, I mean, what is sad is when you've kept all the tradition, you kept all the ritual, but you've emptied it, you've vacated it of the content of the gospel. Um, so there's an ongoing struggle there, I think, of uh, how do we communicate the gospel in a way that people really understand, and what they are being communicated to is antithetical to their culture. The cross. Jim? It's certainly going to change life from top to bottom if you believe in a bodily resurrection and that this life does interface with that next life in the convictions and in the compassion and the work that you do um, for the sake of others. Fear. I mean, that, uh, that's an, that would be an interesting dynamic to preach to and think through. Um, hmm. Yeah. Kristen? I could be wrong, but it's my understanding that Wolfman never left Germany. And um, I wonder sometimes uh, if it would be helpful for us believers in the West to read scripture along with brothers and sisters in other cultures, especially Africa and, and uh, mm-hmm. South, South America. I know you've spent time in Africa. What could you say to us about reading scripture with Christians from around the world so that our perspective is not so um, culturally tied to the West and the way we think. Hmm. That's a really good point. Uh, yeah. 
Virginia could speak to that as well. Yeah, we've been to Ghana six times. We've been to Mongolia six times. Um, Mongolia is like the Church of Acts. You know, it's this century in which they believed. And so it's like talking to first century believers having come to Christ. It's a really unusual experience. Um, and we have joked that we go to Africa to kind of be re-energized. And then I can come back and do a couple of years in the West. Um, but the vitality, the faith, the commitment, the understanding. And, and, and uh, Satan has done a great job on us in eliminating the spirit world from our thinking and our feeling and our actions. And, uh, and there it's, it's alive and it's dynamic and I, and I believe it's real. And uh, the satanic power of, of spirits and the occult and using that uh, is a present reality in, in these uh, very poor rural communities. It's not because they're not sophisticated. It's because it is the tool that Satan is using in that context. doesn't necessarily need to use the tool here because it takes a manifestation of secularity that is as demonic as the um, anti-God spirit world. So yes, it it really does revolutionize your thinking. You're not just such a a Western-educated kind of person. Yeah. Well, very good. May the Lord bless us and keep us and may his face shine upon us and may he give us his peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.